0: What's really cool about needle felting is you are puncturing the wool into the felt and the needle goes through that piece of felt into the backstop, which is also material, and it like pops. Honestly, I've given IVs before as a combat lifesaver in the military, and so it's very similar to like puncturing skin, right? It has this like a release, and it's very therapeutic. Needle felting is therapeutic. Maybe that's not news.
1: But convincing veterans in rural Indiana that they might want to take up needle felting? That's another story. And that's the one we're talking about this week. It's Interstates, I'm Alex Chambers. Coming up, a conversation with Todd Burkhart about what happens when veterans start making masks and needle felting. A life in the military and making art afterward on this week's Interstates. Coming up right after this. Welcome to Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. I'm Alex Chambers. Up until a few years ago, Todd had spent his whole working life in the military, 28 years. His last military job was running the ROTC program on the Indiana University campus. When he retired from that and moved to civilian life and a civilian job, also on campus, you'd think it wouldn't have been that big a change, but he felt it.
0: I was in charge of things, I was running things and, you know, doing real world things and then I'm some staff weenie, like, you know, putting together uh, meetings to talk about some things, What's your definition of is is.
1: This new job, this uh, staff weenie job, he does like it. He works at the university's Center for Rural Engagement, where along with running meetings about the definition of is, he helps bring the university's resources to rural parts of the state. He also teaches the law of war in the criminal justice department. And because he's a military man, he was particularly interested in the challenges veterans face. We'll get to what he's doing to help, but I wanna start with Todd's own experience. Growing up, I don't think he imagined he'd be trying to convince veterans to sit down and start needle felting with him.
0: I grew up in a steel town known as Bethlehem. Billy Joel, back in the day, sung about Allentown. Well, Allentown, Bethlehem, I guess Bethlehem, harder to find words that rhyme than Allentown, but it was a story about the steel mill going under or going bankrupt. And so that's my my hometown. I grew up in a steel town, Center City. My dad was a house painter. My dad never went to high school, became a house painter at the age of 13 and worked for his father until my dad passed away about 20 years ago. And I think sometime after the end of high school, I recognized that I don't know if I really saw a future for me in my hometown. I had great loving parents, had a lot of great friends, I enjoyed my time in high school, but I needed, I needed to get away uh, from my hometown. And so I did a year of college, I played college football, um, prices were really expensive, my parents couldn't help with, uh, with playing, paying for tuition. And I became, I guess, disillusioned, and I just needed to escape. And so um, I went down, saw an Army recruiter, uh, signed the line, and uh, it was called delayed entry. So I signed paperwork, and then five months later, I would leave for the service. And I, I remember that night after I signed, um, I sat at the dinner table, and my dad came in late, as always. He was out working. And somewhere between, hey, can you pass the mashed potatoes, I told my parents I enlisted in the Army. And... Uh, I broke my mom's heart because I was the first, you know, first-generation college student ever, right, in our family to, to go to higher ed. Um, and I guess her 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 dreams and hopes were kind of shattered there. And then my dad, he, uh, he thought it was great. And I think in some ways, like, I escaped and he never did.
1: His grandfather served in World War II, but Todd says he didn't really come from a military family.
0: I guess, you know, the commercials of Be All You Can Be, which was the mantra and the motto back in the day. It spoke to me, uh, the physicality, the team building, and uh, sense of adventure, or getting out of where I was. And I think I was really just enthralled with that whole type of lifestyle and opportunity and adventure.
1: And although it broke his mother's heart at first, she agreed later on that it was the best decision he could have made.
0: Because I think, in a lot of ways, the military is an equalizer. It enables people to get out of a position that they might be in or might not have access to certain things. And so it it provides opportunities.
1: Todd took advantage of those opportunities. But right after he enlisted, it didn't exactly feel like opportunity.
0: I enlisted in the Army December twenty seventh, nineteen eighty eight, which was a bad time of year, I have to say. Two two days after Christmas, uh, I enlisted in the army. I'll never forget my first New Year's in the army. Uh, I've been in, I was in the army about uh, what is that, six days or, or four days, and uh, you know, lights out at nine p.m. and everybody in the barracks, you know, crying because we we're away from home. Uh, yeah, it was. It's not a good. It was not a good time. We flew um, out of Pennsylvania down to uh, Louisville, and I did my basic training at Fort Knox, Kentucky, uh, and arrived at like, I don't know, one in the morning or something. It was rainy, it was December. Uh, and so we got landed in Louisville, then there was a charter bus that took us to Fort Knox. It was really calm, nothing really going on. I was expecting like the movies, people screaming and carrying on, but it was really chill. Uh, it was, also one in the morning. Uh, and so we got off the bus and they took us to the mess hall to get something to eat, which was great. So we ate some old burgers or whatever it was, went to sleep. Uh, and then at, uh, I think it was 5 AM, the drill sergeant came in through and through big trash cans, scream, carry on. I, I mean, everybody's, eye, you could see the whites of everybody's eyes. Cause we were like, what did we get? into. Right. And so this is that moment where you're like, oh my God, did I make a mistake?
1: my main experience is just seeing the movies yeah, you know and, and, and... I think there are
0: a lot of them more accurate uh, so <laughs> you know a lot of cursing I think there's a lot less cursing now but a lot of cursing you know doing different exercises to muscle failure and I'll never forget when we were in a, it was called like a reception station where you get there you get your uniforms you get all your shots you do your will and um, your life insurance and all that type of paperwork and you do another physical a medical physical and review board and stuff like that and you do all this this stuff so you were finally ready to do training. So during that phase, the drill sergeants might yell occasionally or throw a trash can to wake you up or something like that. But for the most part, they leave you alone. So it was about six or seven days or something like that. And then we finished all that. And then the real drill sergeants came over to get you, to bring you to the barracks where they were going to train you for the next 16 weeks. That was a significant emotional event. I just remember drill sergeants around us, screaming, carrying on, don't know what to say, and any answer you say is incorrect, whether you say yes or no or whatever, and the questions the way they were worded, you're completely confused. And also, you had people in your face yelling and carrying on and screaming at you, and you're scared to death. You're away from home. And uh, I just remember we were on the bus, and we have two big duffel bags and also like a rucksack or a backpack full of gear that we were assigned. And they were screaming for us to get off the bus and run to the barracks, which I mean, maybe it was, I don't know, half a football field. It wasn't too long. It seemed like the longest mile. Like it seemed forever because I was carrying all this gear and the drill starts were lined up and they were screaming and yelling and and gear was falling and people were tripping. It was yeah, it was it was something. It was significant. I mean to the point where, you know, thirty-five years later I remember it vividly.
1: Todd says it's not an accident that basic training starts off that way.
0: I guess the the thought process is really to break everybody down, right? That there's no individuality. It's team. And wherever you came from, we don't care. We're going to instill in you professional military ethic and, and value system that a professional soldier should have.
1: Is it explicit, though? Do the sergeants reflect to the new soldiers on why they're treating them that way? Not so much.
0: That feeling of, did I make a mistake, it went on for probably the next six weeks, <laughs> you know? So it went on for a long period of time of like, oh my God, what did I get myself into? I think there's a moment where you have to search for yourself and kind of question, is this what I want to do? And there were guys, uh, you know, had a couple guys that, you know, went to the drill sergeant's office, bang on the door and they wanted to, they wanted to go home. And, you know, a lot of the drill sergeants say, go sit the F down, you're not. And I think that was great because some of those guys, they stayed in the Army and they, became, they were great soldiers. And there were other guys that I guess, you know, drill sergeants probably did that just for everybody, but then got to see maybe when another guy, he, a guy came back or maybe the way he was acting in a couple days, they knew that this was not going to work and they processed him to leave the military. In some ways, I joke and say, you know, it's a love-hate relationship. There's plenty of things in the Army that I had to do that wasn't a fan. Sleep outside when it's really cold or train in the mud or stay up all night over a couple nights or traverse six miles in the woods, you know, whatever. So there's a lot of times I'm like, oh my gosh, boy, what am I doing? And then, but inevitably, there was always much more... Good, the opportunity to work with great people, do amazing things, build teams, accomplish things, and just opportunities like I mentioned about going to grad school and teaching future leaders of the United States Army. And so, when put in perspective, being cold or lack of food or lack of sleep in short durations wasn't that bad, you know? And so, I mean, some of it sucked, but I mean, it wasn't overall, you know, I think in a lot of ways, as I mentioned, I think I was very, I, I benefited from, from the Army in so many ways.
1: He got a master's and a PhD. He taught at West Point, wrote a book on just war and human rights. But eventually, it was time to move on.
0: My first year here as a, leaving the military, it was hard for me in a lot of ways, because, as I mentioned, I I'd spent, you know, 28 years in the military, active duty. And so I was used to a certain type of Operational tempo or or momentum. I was used to a way of a team operating. I I knew my task and purpose and how I fit into the larger picture. And so when I left the military, and I'm, I'm, you know, for for good or bad, I'm ultimately tied to. I was a lieutenant. I was an officer in the United States Army. That's who I was. And uh, I was in ROTC here. And I said we just won a big award. And my self identity was captured by my military service for good or bad. And, and so when I left the service, of course, IU operates in teams, but it's not the same. Deadlines are not necessarily the same the way they and there are in the army. When you tell people to do things, they do, and you also have the right to dictate or direct people to do things in the military. Where here, it's more nuanced, uh, <laughs> you know. And so all of that, right? And 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 finding out how do I fit in as a staff person in a center who's doing great work, and I was really interested in in being a part of that, but I felt. I felt disconnected. I, I spoke different. I speak, you know, in acronyms and military ease and jargon. And people are like, Wait. like what? Like ASAP. So, hey, I need that ASAP, right? Maybe that's an easy one. And it's always interesting because civilians don't say ASAP. They say as soon as possible. <laughs> and it's funny because when a civilian says that, that means, hey, as soon as possible, I would, I need that, you know, that sheet. In the army, it's, it means get it to me and now. And so it doesn't mean as soon as possible. It means you're already late getting it to me. And it's so that ASAP, uh, excuse me, uh, as soon as possible, it's said too slow. So we say ASAP. Because it means really fast. I need it now. It means yesterday. It means yesterday, right? So just that, right? As a, as a silly one, but just other, you know. And I, I sometimes I try. I, I use a lot of analogies, and they're all warlike. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, because that's that's you know, uh, it's just it's just funny. But that's that's how I speak. And so there was just I felt in some ways. Of course, I have an academic background, and we talk, you know. I just didn't fit. I think in a lot of ways. And sometimes I feel like. A, telling where I'm from or my stories, I feel sort of like uh, a gorilla, uh, uh, you know, kind of beating my chest or something. And people are like, what is that? You know, it's less like I I just don't, I don't fit in. And I feel my self-identity and this sense of purpose had been gone, right? I had this, they were concrete, they were palpable in the military, and then that What I had been doing for three decades is now no more, and just kind of you know this, you know um, this resurrection, so to speak, of like how how do I make the new Todd or the next next new phase of my life? uh, What does that look like? And it was it was hard for me.
1: Right. I mean, in order to have a resurrection, you have to have a death. Yeah,
0: yeah, And so you were, like, dealing with having lost a pretty major part of who you were. Yeah, absolutely, right? And I and accomplished a whole lot, and so, and I think I was pretty successful yeah. in, in the military. And so this new life, it was it was hard. And I don't mean – I work with a lot of great staff and faculty, and they're wonderful people. I, I don't mean that in any way. They're caring, you know, and, and, and that. But it just I, – I didn't feel connected, and I didn't feel – like, I didn't know how I fit. And so I think, you know, I, I felt – isolated. I felt in some ways not through anything people here at work did, but I did feel marginalized. And I I was depressed. Um, I was depressed.
1: He'd been in charge of things, making things happen, and now he was running a lot of meetings. It didn't feel like making things happen. Then he got an invitation that sent him in a direction he couldn't have predicted. If you've been listening, you probably can, but we're going to take a little break before confirming that. We'll be right back. It's Inner States. I'm Alex Chambers, and we're talking with Todd Burkhart about his life in the military, how hard it can be to talk about, and what can help open things up. Todd had been working at a center on the IU campus. Things were feeling a bit meaningless. Then one day, an art therapist at the Eskenazi Museum of Art, the campus art museum, invited Todd and all his colleagues to an open studio event. Come on over, she said. I'll take you through some art-based activities that help with stress. It'll be fun. So they went. She'd laid out a bunch of materials. There were various prompts for drawing and even some group activities. Todd was surprised at his reaction to the whole thing.
0: I am not artistic and I have not done art since high school. And the only reason I did art in high school, I think, is well, it was graded and you needed it to graduate. And I have to tell you, pun intended, I was drawn to this, right? That this intentionality of expression through nonverbal means, I really liked. I like the ability to express. I come from a profession in some ways that is stoic in that you suck it up and you drive on. You better get comfortable with being uncomfortable because that's the way it is. And I understand that mantra, but the problem is when that mantra permeates every aspect of military life, that's problematic because you don't ask for help. Mental health, is uh, if you have issues, is seen as a weakness. The military is getting a little bit better now, but mm, still have a long way to go. And so what do people do? Well, we drink. Uh, it's amazing how much alcohol the military sells as a way of coping, I guess. And so using art, I was, I thoroughly enjoyed those two hours and I could just express in such a way where I didn't have to say anything. You could just see it in the page. Um, And afterwards I said to Lauren, the art therapist, I was like, you know, I think there's something there that this, this helps, right? Um, You know, it's a, it's another tool that you can put in your toolkit, right? Or your tool bag that can help regarding mental health or about expression. And I said, you know, maybe if this can help me, there's a lot of other veterans right outside that you know, are just like me or worse than me or not as bad as me uh, that maybe might take to this. And so we were like, screw it, let's just start doing stuff. And so we start reaching out to local veterans who were connected in the community or a nonprofit and we start hosting and facilitating. We've done some art therapy, but generally we've done art-based wellness events. And so we've traveled to about 12 or 13 different counties in Indiana and put on events that you know last anywhere from 90 minutes to two and a half hours using art-based wellness, whether that's um, needle felting or mandalas or um, mask making as a way for veterans to express themselves through nonverbal means. We get a lot of feedback, and uh, veterans uh, seem to really like the opportunity to express, but also there's a connectedness of pulling veterans in into a room that, to me, from my experience working with different groups of veterans around the state, there's this there's this common narrative. Although maybe we don't know each other prior to this event and you served in the Vietnam War and I served in the Cold War and you're a man and I'm a woman or whatever the case may be, it doesn't matter. You served three years or 30 years, you're a veteran. So you have gone through some of the significant emotional things that I had to go through and there's this kind of the facades disappear a little bit. And there's this, for the most part, there's a sense of trust. And I think it's just really neat to see conversations unfold, whatever those are, they're war stories or they're talking about what they're doing now or they're talking about their grandkids or their kids or, you know, they love to go fishing. It it doesn't matter. I think conversations immaterial, but it it gives the veterans a chance just to talk to somebody who's like them. And I think that's that's something that I never thought when we start putting this together. And I I think that's... uh, it's just a, a great component of that.
1: Are the uh, conversations that you're seeing between the vets, are they different than they
0: would be without the art aspect? It depends. So we, when we do these events, we let the vets go wherever they want to go in conversation. So we've had conversations, you know, I, I talked to a, a woman veteran during the Indiana Department of Veterans Affairs Women Wellness Retreat. We had about 50 women veterans who were part of this at Brown County State Park last March. They range from the early thirties to late sixties. And it was just wonderful. I do all the art making with people as well, because I'm a veteran and i want to go through it. And also I can give feedback of how maybe how we can do things better as well. And I want to engage, right? So, and it's just interesting. I had a really nice conversation with a woman who is now a truck driver. She served in the Marines and it was a really nice conversation about, you know, her job and where she drives and, you know, she does cross country deliveries and stuff like that. But then I've been in other ones where, um, I had, people who want to talk to me about the death and dying that they've been exposed to. Yeah. Yeah. So it, I think, I think it just, uh, it depends, uh, of what, what people want to talk about. I think in some ways people, they want to share stories, you know, but they, they need to do that in a way that they feel comfortable. And so I, uh, I I feel in some ways privileged where people have wanna to talk to me about some of the things that they've witnessed or suffered or been exposed to to maybe get it off their chest or, or share. And it's interesting because I've worked with veteran service officers as well. And so a veteran service officer, there's one for every county in the state. We've done, like I said, in multiple counties, we've done different events and this one veteran service officer whose whole role is helping veterans with benefits and entitlements. And we sat on the one side during this event and he went in a lot of depth about a lot of tragic things that happened to his unit in Afghanistan. And we didn't have to go there, but that's where the conversation went, where where he wanted it to take it. I'm never, I never pry, I ask questions. But I think in some ways I left there and what he does for a living is he helps veterans. I don't think maybe at the end of the day anybody asked him about him. And so, yeah, I think it was a it was a way for him to share his stories. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it just depends. And I think one of the neat exercises we do is uh, we make masks. And so do exterior and interior of the masks. These are always amazing. And it's amazing just to find some of these people who are very artistic. And I'm like, oh, here's mine. It's not too artistic. <laughs> but what's, what's really neat about it, too, is having the opportunity on the back end, if they want. And we've had plenty of veterans that don't wanna explain what's on the inside of the mask. Don't have to, we don't want anybody to talk that they don't feel comfortable. But it's interesting to hear a lot of stories regarding what's on the mask, especially the inside. And so it depends on how you frame the prompt, but you know, it could be, what do you show the exterior world or what do you show to the world? And then the inside, maybe what do you hold close? doesn't have to be negative, it can be positive, but what do you hold? And so that conversation can get really deep, can get really sad. You know, I've had multiple veterans that talk about losing soldiers. Just did one in Brown County not that long ago. A senior, a senior citizen who served a long time in the military had been in multiple wars, multiple combat deployments. And, uh, you know, after he lost soldiers in the first deployment through combat, you know, he said he would never lose soldiers again and he did and so you know and he promised you know family and friends that he would bring his whole team home and he didn't yeah so uh so you you hear those uh stories um and i i feel maybe you know in some ways um we're we're an outlet you know because i don't know you know uh, to hold stuff in, and I'm guilty of that too, um, but sometimes it's good to be able to share it among a group of people who maybe experience similar things or they, they, they definitely have an understanding. Because the military, although it's a, <laughs> it's a large organization, anybody who's spent any time in the military uh, has friends or colleagues that are dead now, either through combat or training accidents or invisible wounds suicide and others yeah and so i think it's those commonalities and you know as a soldier fundamentally we train i mean we train to kill and so at the end of the day my profession's about taking enemy combatant lives and being effective and efficient at it and so everything's focused and surrounds itself around death and so if you're not a person who's training how to neutralized targets, you are somebody who helps support um, that war fighting function. And so everybody in the military is pretty aware and conscious of just the the death aspect and a lot of the training that we do as well, it comes with with risks. And I just think that these events we put on, hopefully in some ways provide opportunities for veterans just to kind of express themselves of some of these things that they think about that will stay with them to their end of days. Um, how do you deal with that? Yeah, Uh, yeah, um, it's it's interesting, um, you, you, you say that, uh, because some of these, some of these are nice, they're easy breezy, man, you know, and so we talk about, Hey, I'm a truck driver (laughs) and I I drive cross country and and I have a dog and the dog is with me in the cab and, you know, and those are, those are great. And, but when we get into some of these other ones, I do, I I do feel it. it, it, uh, I guess in some ways I kind of, uh, I don't want to say share their pain because I have no idea what that pain is from their personal stories. Um, but it does affect me. I mean, you can you can just tell in my in my voice. I mean, when you just start hearing some of these these stories, and they're they're terrible uh, or tragic, you know. And so, but uh, I think in some ways, it's it's an opportunity for veterans to express because in, in one way or another, they don't have access to care, or don't know how to get into VA care, or maybe they don't qualify for a certain type of of care, or don't think they they qualify for it or not, or in, not interested in it. And so I do think that these events, in some ways, hopefully provide not maybe necessarily closure, but maybe some post-traumatic growth. Because I think from my own personal journey, talking about some of the things that I've experienced has helped me in some ways. And so maybe in some ways, I think it, it does with them as well. Yeah, yeah.
1: I guess I kind of want to come back to that question I just asked, yeah, yeah, though. Yeah. The thing that you said about the fact that fundamentally you're being trained to kill people, you know, or support that.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. How do you deal with that? Does that make sense? Yeah,
0: no, that's a, that's a it's a, like how do you,
1: how do you like live with that on some level? As a person, like not just, yeah. not just like how do you understand it theoretically and like just war and yeah. sort of all your academic writing. But just, like, as as a person, and and I think it's, like, for you, like, as an emotionally mature person now,
0: yeah. Yeah.
1: you know, but, like, it's a really heavy thing to carry.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, whew, I don't know if I – that's a very heavy question, as a matter of yeah. fact. I think it's a great question. I think a lot of maybe it comes in with just repetition and training, right, and become um, – be very – Exposed to all kinds of things in the military for training loud noises and explosions and working together as a team and Shooting your rifle all the time and carrying your rifle and and using certain tactics So a lot of things become second nature Pointing guns at people right we do a lot of war games where there's blanks or laser tag or you know some type of simulators and so it's always about Killing the other team, of course, you know, unless they surrender. But so I think that's just ingrained into you, where a lot of that becomes second nature. And I think the training and 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 the more realistic and hard training, I think, the better probably prepared you are to do it in the real world. And I have to say, it's interesting. Chaplains, pretty interesting profession in the military, where. All chaplains, I've seen them give, of course, sermons and church services and stuff, but they are all really good in talking about to soldiers that might question their obligation to kill on behalf of the United States. That's one thing I guess all chaplains learn through the military, that they can talk in depth, reasonably, rationally, about why it's okay to take another person's life, meaning an enemy combatant. And it's just interesting because I never realized that about chaplains, but I guess that's probably one of the biggest things that maybe people go talk to chaplains about. And so that they are very well versed in, in talking to somebody about the justifications of why it's why it's okay to pull a trigger on an enemy combatant. And so I think just just the training for such long periods of time, and shooting and practicing and working as a team, I think just, you know, that was my daily job. And so I think you just become, I don't want to say desensitized because that's that's not the right word, but you understand that's what you do and you become really good at it, you become effective at it and efficient at it. Todd
1: strikes me as the kind of person who's effective at whatever he takes on. But when your job is taking enemy combatant lives, as he put it, and losing people you work with or who you've sent into battle, it's a lot to carry. There's a reason Todd connects with the veterans at these workshops.
0: I was in a unit, which was um, Special Operations Joint Task Force, and I was part of a commando SOAG, Special Operations Advisory Group, I served in Afghanistan 2013-14, and we had Three of our uh, soldiers, uh, one Air, U.S. Air Force and two Slovakian special forces, that were killed with an IED, uh, improvised explosive uh, device, and um, it was a vehicle that had had the explosive device uh, attached to it, and the vehicle came back up behind one of our vehicles, and uh, and detonated, and uh, it killed all three men. In the first vehicle, the guys in the second vehicle survived, and. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, cuz you you I was in Afghanistan and you do you know, whatever job that you're assigned daily and we know the harms out, you know, the 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 hazards involved in being in a war torn country, but I don't think anybody is ever ready for something like that. And you know, it, it struck our unit. Um it was, you know, it was December 27th when it happened and uh they were killed instantly and it's, 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 it's emotional in a lot of ways. One, I mean, lost our brothers, right, that we're close to, young, you know, uh, late 20s, uh, all three of them. Two were married, one with kids, one single. And that's it. And uh, so that was hard. I mean, it was incredibly hard to kind of move through that. And, you know, we have a, a ceremony there to honor them. But what is interesting, too, when something like that happens, all communications to the outside, they go black. So they're shut down. So our Wi-Fi, our Internet to the outside world, unclassified. So uh, everything, there's no communication inside or out. And so because, and I understand this, the Army needs to notify next of kin that their family members have been killed. So that's incredibly important because you sure as heck don't want to put something on a Facebook, right? So it completely makes sense. However... I can't – what's hard about that as well as losing your compatriots, uh, you know, your friends, um, to something like that, but also I can't contact my wife to tell her it wasn't me, you know. So there's a void in communication for about three days. So there's no access to the outside. And so, you know, and my wife would – you know, just like any other spouse would be following the news. actually, she watched a lot of Al Jazeera on the phone fo- on her phone because they covered more of Afghanistan than you know the United States. a lot of times just was a blip on the bottom of the screen. And so when a helicopter, I flew a lot in helicopters and when a helicopter would go down or there was a car bomb, right? She was always worried, especially if she thought I was out somewhere. Cause I traveled a lot of, all over the country, as a matter of fact, just based on the, my job I had. But so that was really hard with not telling my family that it, I'm, I'm okay. You know, it's somebody else in our unit, but I made it, you know? And so, yeah. And so I don't know what it's like being on the home front. Um, you know, and uh, I think that's incredibly incredibly hard for a family unit to try to to negotiate that, you know, but then it, you know, it's interesting so three days are over and I can get a hold of my family. but it's also, you know, we got a job to do, and so things didn't stop, you know, we had ceremony for the three service members, two of them, one on our small base camp. And then we had a bigger one as the bodies uh, with uh, the flags on it in caskets were were loaded onto a C-17 plane and, and flown off to Germany and then to the you know Slovakia and the United States. But then it's like, okay, let, let's go next mission. Right. And so life didn't stop. Missions don't stop. Enemies still out there and we still need to continue what we're doing. And so you know, just the whole op-tempo and then trying to, to even deal with those stressors. And probably, you know, my the biggest thing I had for mental well-being in the uh, in, in my deployment was the gym. You know, throw around some st- weight, uh, some steel. Uh, you know, we have gun range, too, so we would shoot a lot. But I think it's just the way you need outlets. And I think uh, physicality or being physical is one of those. So I think that was in- incredibly helpful. but. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think in a lot of some of the, some of the things that I experienced in the military or during deployments, they don't really manifest until much longer after that. You know, I'm busy. I'm trying to figure out ways to defeat Al Qaeda, Haqqani, and the Taliban. And so that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> I want to defeat, destroy, neutralize, dismantle those organizations as best I could. Well, we lost that war, but anyway, that's what I was trying to do. And then later, you know, whether maybe that's weeks later, months later, years later, where you're maybe no longer in that, that it really maybe wears on you, or maybe there's things that you could have done differently that could have somehow, you know, protected people who lost their lives that never really thought about until after the fact.
1: It sounds to me like one of the things that this creative arts program Creates is a space for people to hold each other's experiences.
0: I've heard some really sad stories, tragic stories, um, but to me, there, there's this that people want to say them. They, they, they. I don't ask. I mean, I, I don't, I don't ask uh, because you know, I don't, I don't want to make anybody feel uncomfortable. But it's amazing how many different stories I heard and they're all tragic on one level or another of what somebody experienced or or suffered or went through. And people feel the need or want to, they live with that. And I think if given an opportunity and a safe environment and a safe environment of people that they feel there has to be a certain level of trust that, you know, we all have kind of been through the military together one aspect, another three years, 30 years, whatever, that they feel comfortable enough where they share that and, you know, everybody in there can, can understand that. I think that's important. And I never, I never really thought about when we were starting putting this together of that connectedness and wanting to share as much as just actually using art to express, but then the opportunity if wanted to then explain what your art is and what does it mean.
1: The masks in particular lead to a lot of discussion. The idea is that on the front of the mask, you put what you show to the world. On the back of the mask, it's what you keep inside.
0: And I've had veterans that were like, no, I don't want to talk about it. And whatever it is on the inside, or they don't even want to show whatever it is on the inside. But you know they worked on the inside because you saw them on the other side of the table cranking it out. Hey, that's cool. And they take it with them and whatever they do with it, you know. But they were able, you know, to in some way maybe get some aggression out, get get some feelings out, put something into it. And maybe in some way, you know, it helped. I think with art-based wellness, I don't think it's the end-all be-all, but I think it's just one thing that people can use towards improving well-being and having an outlet, you know, that, you know getting good sleep, have a social connections, uh, exercising, all those different, th- having, um, you know, a hobby that you like, you know, all those different things are so important to mental well-being and health. This is just one more. One of the things that I learned from doing these events, a lot of veterans after the fact are like, this is awesome. When are you coming back? And it's always interesting, cause I'm like, okay, when do you guys want me to come back? And then also have a day job and, and trying to figure out all these other things. And so we do go back and, but maybe it's four months from now. And what I recognize with that is that's not gonna work. That if there is something that you can use that can maybe help you, you have to be more involved with it than once a quarter. And so with that was really, after talking to multiple veterans, I thought, I wonder if somehow we could package this up where they could take it with them. And so that was really my thought and impetus behind the CAV book. The CAV book.
1: CAV is Creative Arts for Vets. In the book, Todd developed it with a team of art therapists and social workers. It's a step-by-step therapeutic guidebook for veterans with veterans' resources and stories from veterans. It also comes with an art kit, charcoal pencils, watercolor pencils, oil pastels
0: we will mail it to any veteran, the spouse of a veteran or anybody currently serving in the military, anywhere in the United States or in an APO address if they're stationed over in the Middle East or in Europe or whatever the case may be. And you could be in a homeless shelter or incarcerated. And we send it to veterans there as well. And this is a great way where I think it increases access because you don't have to come to my event. We'd love if you come to my event, but you don't have to. You can do this in the safety and security of at your kitchen table or on your lazy boy, or, you know, while you're deployed somewhere in your barracks at night or in a homeless shelter. And, and you know, hopefully in some ways there's a lot of art exercises and, and journaling in it where maybe it can provide that outlet of intentionality and expression through nonverbal means. And that's was really the beginning of this whole project two and a half years ago that, you know, uh, it really has helped me and it continues to help me.
1: Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about why I was a little skeptical about the book at first. Stick around. In our state's Alex Chambers, we're talking with Todd Burkhart about Creative Arts for Vets, a program he started. He worked with a team, an art therapist, social worker, and more, to develop a book so veterans could use art for wellness on their own. I gotta admit, I was skeptical about it in certain ways. I know not all vets are men, but still the majority are. And whether you're coloring or working with felt, it's, you know, not
0: very masculine. I'm glad you brought that up. Okay, so (laughs) you're absolutely right. So for those that can't see me, I'm kind of built like an ogre, right? Bald, kind of, I hope I have some muscles, right? And I I think the issue is anytime I say, hey, we're gonna color for mental health, A lot of guys, because it's macho. A lot of guys are like, "I am manly and I don't color." Well, You're missing out. And what I what I try to say, look at me. I, I look f- fairly manly. I've done manly things. I was in the infantry, right? I was an infantry officer, which is a pretty hardcore branch in the in the army. Uh, and so I color. And so if I do it, I think maybe you you could do it as well we're doing two things that I think for the most part, a lot of people in the military are uncomfortable with, especially men. We're doing art, which could be seen as feminine. And also we're gonna, we might talk about mental health, not that we say anything on the flyer, but it does come up because we're talking about mental well-being. And so I think for those two things, especially as I talked about earlier, being inculcated in such a way where, you know, suck it up and drive on and, you know, oh, you can't handle something, you're weak mentality. Well, the last thing a lot of people who were in the Army want to do is go to something about mental health because their whole time in the Army, I say Army because that was my background, but in the military is to shy away from mental health help, right? And so twofold, two reasons why not to come to this event. One, we're going to color, <laughs> and two, it's about mental well-being. Oh, my gosh, give me a break, yeah. right? So I think there are some people that we had at RCP and then they don't show up, right. which is sad. So we really like that you can bring a partner or a friend because we think if you do that, you'll actually show up.
1: Todd says it can be tricky to get people to come and to get
0: involved. I talk about my background and, you know, I'm, as you saw in the interview, I'm kind of emotional with some things and it just, it just kind of happens and I don't mind. Right. And I don't, you know, and I I, I admit that I do have issues um, because it's okay, you know, and I'm working through them and, you know, maybe somebody hears this, they're like, it's okay to mention that. Yeah, maybe it, this isn't this isn't a bad thing to pick up using arts or find my other niche of woodworking or I don't know whatever the case may be that can that can help me with mental well-being. It is interesting because we've had had some reluctance in in some groups. And it's weird, as you know, as being a professor, when you have a class, every class has its own dynamic, right? And so it's like high energy, low energy, right? It's, uh, you know, reluctance. uh, It's happy-go-lucky, whatever it is. And so that's the way these groups are. And so you never know. And we've had a lot of women which probably Mm -hmm. just indicative of it being arts. We've had a lot of women veterans, which is great because women veterans, even more than male veterans are more marginalized. And I can talk about that down the road sometime, but as you could probably imagine for a lot of reasons. Okay. So it's wonderful to have women be a part of it. And they jump right in and they're just like, this is awesome. And we did textile mixed media um, designing too. And it it was like Joanne Fabrics on Steroids. We did this one event. Oh, women loved it. I was like, I, I did it too, it was cool, I, you know, but it was like buttons and fabric and sequence and it was it was amazing. Uh, but the women loved it. And it was a, one of those women veteran wellness retreats, okay. right? So it wasn't a guy thing because they probably would have had a lot of men just walk out. So, you know, we think masks is sort of gender neutral, right, yeah. uh, you know, mm-hmm. or non-binary. And so it's something anybody can do. So we try to find something that doesn't matter who you are and even the needle felting at first I have to say it, it sounds very feminine but when you put a needle in your hand and you're just jabbing right forcing it into material there's something about that that um, methodology that rhythm that is incredibly I think uh, re- relaxing and it doesn't matter who you are I mean you're holding a metal spike right so hopefully that's there's some masculinity in that right you know? But there is some. We've had some where we say, "Okay, this is the prompt, and this is what we want you to do." And we had a guy who we were de- de- designing um, affinity messaging, like uh, inspirational messaging or symbols on a small index card that you could, you know, look at for inspiration, or you can hand to your buddy or something like that. It was this before we start really getting into doing masks, and we we're trying out different things that we, you know, what what would work and. It was a group of burly men. I will just say that. Much burlier than me with real long beards, right? And uh, I mean I you don't want to go down the wrong alley and have to, you know, negotiate with these guys because they they would take your lunch for sure. They all they all did it except one guy, crusty old guy, you know, really nice guy, but his card set there and at the end of the 45 hour whatever it was, it was completely blank and there was nothing on it and he didn't do anything on it. And it was interesting where we went around the table then, it was a small group, it was like 10 veterans, uh, went around the group and said, okay, what'd you write? What, you know, what was the reason behind it? But he wanted to say his piece, and it was interesting because he didn't do anything. And I think at the end, maybe he just wasn't paying attention to everybody engaged in the room, but he wanted to then say, okay, well, mine. I left my end blank, and this is the reason why. I think towards the end, he he recognized that everybody else is doing this as a way just to express. And it's, it's okay, man. I mean, this is, nobody's poking fingers at somebody say, oh, you can't draw or, oh, you're doing something that's feminine. You're using crayons. Right. And it was just interesting at the end, he was like, yeah, I want to talk about mine. And it was interesting because there was, he did nothing. He didn't even pick up an oil pastel, but he wanted to express himself and be part of the the group because they all expressed themselves and they all did something. So it was interesting, right? Cause we've had some people like that, but for the most part, when we, we give guidance or talk about stuff, people do it. And then I always, I try to move around and talk to different people just to get different perspectives on stuff and the art therapist will walk around. Or sometimes we have uh, people who have a uh, master's in social work that facilitate mm-hmm. art-based wellness where our art therapist does art-based wellness, but also art therapy proper. And one of the things we're hopefully looking to do in the future is expand the aperture of what we do for art-based wellness. So right now we have a yoga instructor who is also a, a trauma therapist where, hey, we'll come to your town and we'll do yoga, man. So it's, it's great for mental health and right well-being and, and do some exercise and and. And, and do it in such a way, you, you don't have to be, you have, you don't have, ever have to do yoga before, right? So right. we've just added that to the repertoire. And one of the things that we've talked about, just we haven't had really a chance to talk about it in depth or maybe find some money, but hand drumming. And so when you talk about masculinity and pounding and beating, right, or like, you know, and getting a, building a sweat, we think that there will be veterans, men and, and women, of course, men, right? Because, oh, you want to do something manly? We'll pound this drum, right? Yeah. But another way of expression, you know, opening yeah. up that larger framework of, of art and also just recently added Tai Chi as well. We also partner uh, with PALS, People and Animal Learning Services here in Bloomington, and we do art-based wellness and equine-assisted activities. And we've done multiple events with them over the summer, and that is just a remarkable experience for non-riding, but a remarkable experience. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. This feels great to me.
0: Hey, well, thank you so much. This was this was wonderful. Um, thank you. Uh, yeah,
1: thanks for you know, thanks for being willing to be open, like yeah, and present yeah. emotionally, you know. Yeah. Todd Burkhart. Todd is the Director of Campus Partnerships at the Indiana University Center for Rural Engagement. His book, Just War and Human Rights, came out in 2017. It argues that just war theory needs to focus more clearly on human rights. Um, So, after I stopped recording, Todd and I talked a little bit more about what was happening when the vets came in and did art together. I'd been struck by how doing the art gave them a space or, like, a format to talk about their experiences. That seemed like the most powerful part of the whole process to me. Maybe even transformative. So I want to end by asking what can happen when people get together and share stories. One thing that can happen is politics. If you've all shared the same experience, suddenly it's not just your personal experience. And that might make you ask where it came from. And it might even lead you to get people together and try to do something about it. And what can come of that? Well, It depends on what you decide to work on. But if there is something you're wanting to do, one place to start might be to get people in a room together, talking. listening to Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. If you have a story for us or you've got some sound we should hear, let us know at wfiu.org interstates. Okay, we've got your quick moment of slow radio coming up, but first, the credits. Interstates is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers, with support from Violet Barron, Ayoban Binder, Mark Chilla, Avi Forrest, Luanne Johnson, Jack Linder, Yane Sanchez-Lopez, Sam Schemenauer, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our executive producer is John Bailey. Our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer. We have additional music from the artists at Universal Production Music. Special thanks this week to Todd Burkhart and the Indiana University Center for Rural Engagement for helping make this episode possible. Alright, time for some found sound. spring is coming. Or it was one morning in February, at least. Until next week, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks, as always, for
0: listening.